behind me. Um, so yeah, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 9. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. All right, well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy, the lead pastor here. It's so good to have you with us this morning. Whether this is your first time in church or it's just your first time with us here as a church gathering, really good to have you along. And, um, and our, our run of good weather on Sundays, I mean, I don't know what you think of the wind or whatever. It did take the edge off the heat a little bit, but our run of good weather on Sundays has been surprisingly good. So I'm calling it already for December 18 for Christmas carols. It's going to be absolutely sparkling. So it's going to be a great time. But, um, but we're getting into, we're continuing our series in Deuteronomy, as Alicia mentioned before, and looking at God's word to his people throughout time. And it has been surprising as you look at such an ancient text at how relatable it is to a modern context. And this week is no different as we dive into Deuteronomy 7. And what we're going to see is that God calls his people then and now to stand out and to be different from the culture around them. Though their culture was very different in many ways to ours, the call is still the same. God's people are to be different from the people around them. I don't know if you've heard of the Ash Conformity Test. Is there anyone who studied like, came across it in psych or anything like that? Even if you haven't heard the term, I reckon at some point you may have come across this test. But it's called the Ash Conformity Test because it was pioneered by Solomon Ash in the 1950s. And he wanted to work out how easily influenced people were by not even their peers, but just by other people's behaviours around them. So he set up a test, which is a great prank. Each, each kind of uh, group of people that he tested, it was a very simple test. There would just be a couple of lines, and you had to work out which line was the longest. So it could not be any simpler. It could not be any clearer, and the answer couldn't be any clearer. But what he did for each group was he had one participant, and everyone else in the group was actors. Just imagine, find, imagine finding out after this morning that you were the only participant here and everyone else was acting. Just how on edge that would put you for the rest of your life. But anyway, in this, in this test, there's one participant, everyone else is actors, and for the first three sessions, like, they're just short ones, but for the first three, the other actors give mostly correct answers, but one or two wrong here and there. But as the experiment goes on, really from tests four all the way to 15, they start to answer almost every obviously right answer as wrong. So it's like, which line is the longest? And you pick, obviously, the shortest one. And they wanted to see what impact that had on that single participant. And what they found was, around 37% of the time, that person, even though they absolutely knew what the correct answer was, would go with the group. And the conclusion at the end of it, he wrote, he said, 
that intelligent, well-meaning young people are willing to call white black is a matter of concern. Classic 1950s understatement, right? That that's a matter of concern, that you would call white black. Yeah, the concern with the test was just how easily people were influenced in such a low-stakes environment. Imagine knowing what the right answer is, knowing there's no consequence for calling out the correct answer, but because you're around a group of anonymous strangers who are answering differently, you're just like, I'm just going to go with that even though it's obvious to you. And when they interviewed the, the participants later on, they were like, yeah, I knew what the right answer was, but it just kind of threw me, and so I just went with the crowd. There is a strange propensity in us, isn't there, to just go along and to fit in, even in an absurd situation like that. There's this inclination in us that we, just, we don't want to stand out. We don't want to stick out from people around us. We just want to fit in. And probably one of the most difficult things of the call to follow Christ is that he calls you to stand out. And God has done this throughout the ages. He has called his people to be different in a good way to those around them. That actually he calls his people to be holy, to be set apart, to be different to those around them, that they might point to a God who is holy, who is different. And we're going to see from Old Testament to New that God loves his people is devoted to his people and has his heart set upon making them holy and different and set apart that they might be a witness to his goodness and to his good rule. And so let's pray together that we'd see this in the text this morning. Father, we just praise you that you are so good, that your grace is upon us even this morning, that you love us with an everlasting love, and that you've called us, in the power of your Holy Spirit, to be like you, holy and different. And that though we are a sinful and broken people, that you've made a way back to you through the blood of Christ, that we might be reconciled to you, and that bit by bit, by your grace, we might be restored in your image. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to your word this morning, as we look at your word in Deuteronomy 7, at the call to be a people who are set apart, that we might honour you. Amen. Now we as a church want to open the whole council of scriptures. We don't always want to go back just to the favourite texts or the bits that kind of we like the most, but we want to, over time, cover the whole of scriptures. And part of the reason for going through Deuteronomy is that we want to go across some rough ground and wrestle with difficult scriptures. And as a f if you are here and a follower of Christ, it should matter to you do you wrestle at times with some really difficult passages in the scriptures? And the reason for this is, when churches skirt around this kind of stuff, it really leaves you open to being blindsided by someone who maybe is a critic of Christianity or the faith in general, who comes along and says, hey, like, kind of like a gotcha question, did you know about this passage in the Bible? And to be blindsided in that moment and be like, I had no idea that was in there, would be a pretty rough moment. But as a church, we want to equip God's people to understand his word and to understand even the difficult texts. And so we're going to actually dive into the first part of the text this morning is one of those uncomfortable texts. And part of the reason for doing Deuteronomy this year is because it's going to take us through some of the most difficult texts in Scripture. But I want you to read me, with me from Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 5, when he says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. You guys know all them, right? The seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, 
When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall, not make, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. God commands his people here to drive out the seven nations that are in the land that they are going to live in. And he says you must devote them to complete destruction. And God doesn't stutter on this. This comes up again and again throughout Deuteronomy. Not only that, but he doubles down and then says, you shall show no mercy to them. Not only that, but in Deuteronomy 20, look at what it says in 16 and 17. It says, but in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. Earlier in Deuteronomy, probably even more confronting, in Deuteronomy 2, we read this. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. That's pretty confronting. Because last week, I told you that they were driving out these nations before them because these nations were wicked and they practiced things like child sacrifice. But here, is God the kind of God he says, I'm going to punish these nations who kill their children by killing their children. That's problematic. And as we dive into this, how do we approach this, these difficult texts? Well, as a starting point, it is going to be the case that there are truths that are true about God, whether they fit with our sensibilities or not. That God is a holy God, and there is none like him. And at some point along the way, in every culture across the world, the reality of God clashes with that culture. And it's also the case that God is right to judge. That we are sinners and it is right and good for God to judge sin. That he is a God who judges. There is a punishment for sin. But it's also right to ask the question, is this really what God is commanding in Deuteronomy? And if you were here and you're just investigating Christianity, I imagine you too would want to know if this is the kind of thing that this God does. And it's right to ask these questions because if you read the full scriptures, you'll see that God is also the God who not only was willing to forego punishment, but was willing to die in place of his people. He's also the God who says, Pray for your enemies and for those who persecute you. Who says, turn the other cheek. Who says, do not repay evil for evil. Is it possible that God could both do that and command holy war and genocide and the complete ethnic cleansing of a people? Well, the way to approach this, if you have a high view of Scripture, is that you have to weigh up Scripture against Scripture to see what the Bible is really saying about these parts. See, what is going on here? Is God endorsing holy war? Is God the God of holy war and ethnic cleansing? and commanding them to kill innocent women and children? Well, we need to start with the term here, to utterly destroy. The word there in Hebrew is haram, and it means to devote, and can mean to devote to destruction, but also it can mean devote or set apart as holy. 
that you can devote, you can haram, you can set apart an, a property or a particular item, and you can do that as something that's holy to the Lord. And the idea of setting apart a nation for destruction is that you set it apart as holy by wiping it out, to cleanse it. And at this point, you're like, aha, you said it, cleanse. This is ethnic cleansing. This is what the Bible is talking about here. But in Scripture, the, what Israel were meant to do was to wipe out a wicked regime and a culture and to erase it entirely, yeah, but not the people entirely who were there. That's to annihilate every trace of these cultures, but that does not mean wiping out all of the people. And we know that even from the very text that we read. Right after he says you're to destroy them utterly, what's the next line say? And don't intermarry with them. I don't know how it works for you, but it's very difficult to marry someone who does not exist. Clearly those people are going to still be around and in the land. Not only that, but in that very confronting passage where he says we destroyed every man, woman and child, we left no survivors, if you go back to Numbers 21, to the battle that it was describing, it was an open war between two armies. The only people who were there were soldiers. Now what we're seeing is that in the ancient Near East, they used this kind of total language as hyperbole for describing a decisive victory. We completely wiped them out. It was a decisive victory. It's not literally the wiping out of every single person who was there. We know that from the text. We see that the people are still around. The call is to wipe out a vile and wicked culture rather than the people themselves. You might say, well, I guess that's one step better than complete genocide. That still doesn't sound great. But in truth, we still actually hold that when it comes to certain regimes, that is the right thing to do. Once Nazi Germany de was defeated after the Second World War, those in charge set about entirely cleansing the culture of Nazism. They took down every swastika, they took down every monument, they took down every relic and every structure that was devoted to a Nazi ideology. It was completely erased. In fact, Mein Kampf, which was Hitler's Opus Dei, the book he wrote about why it is that he was doing all of this, was banned for it was close to, what, 60, 70 years? It was only in the last decade that it's been allowed to be republished. And even now, those copies that are republished are heavily footnoted to kind of cover all the areas where he was basically saying things that weren't true. Now, after Nazism, because it was such a horrific ideology and so wicked and destructive, it was completely cleansed from the culture. God is not commanding his people to holy wars. They're going into these mighty nations that have ruled wickedly and done abominable things. And he's saying no trace of that culture should be left. This is not, like in holy wars, the mighty bearing down on the weak. Now this is in fact the weak, God using the weak to overthrow the strong. When God calls his people together, he says they're a tiny nation. And they're going up against these huge nations. This is a tiny nation that had been wandering the desert for 40 years, whilst the nations that they're going into have been living in the land, well fed and well fortified and heavily armed for decades, even centuries. They were outnumbered, outgunned, and outmuscled. And more than this, even when they go into their very first battle, God says, you're not to lift a finger in war. You're to go around the city and play music. That's how you're going to win. And God himself wins the battle for them. Not only this, but almost certainly in every holy war, even if 
a, a nation considers themselves smaller than the people that they feel called by God to go up against, they at least feel morally superior to the nation that they're waging war against. But here it's written in Deuteronomy over and over and over again. Israel, you're not better than anyone else. You're not more righteous. You're not more numerous. I didn't choose you because you're the best. In fact, you're to be very humbled by the fact that I'm working through you and in you. Not only this, but the plan was not to keep conquering forever. The way that God's people were going to spread across the earth was not by taking more and more nations and putting them to the sword and saying either convert, turn or burn. No, they were to judge these particular nations and that was it. And once they were there, they were to be a nation that were holy and lived differently to the people around them. God's plan, his mission was not holy war, but holiness. Look what it says in the very next section. In Deuteronomy 7, 6-11, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep, command and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him, but he will repay him to his face. You, that you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Israel were meant to be holy. God says to them, I've set you apart. I've chosen you to be holy, to be different, and to point to a holy God. He says, you are my treasured possession. And he says, I didn't choose you because you were the best. And it was like, well, who's the obvious choice? Israel. They're the best in the ancient Near East. I choose that team. He's not a fair-weather fan who just dips into a sport he likes and like, who's on the top of the table? I'll pick them. That's my team. Just so you know, if you support a team like that, you don't really support them, by the way, just as a little offsider. But he says he chooses the weakest, the fewest, the least to demonstrate his purposes through so that people would know that this, this nation are not doing things because they're great, but they must worship and follow a great God. And his plan is that they would become holy, that they would live differently, that they would act justly, and as that is a witness to the nations around them, the nations would actually come to them, that they wouldn't expand their empire by warfare, but by being God's people in God's place under his rule, that people would start to come to them. And this actually happens. After David, his son Solomon rules, and he rules wisely. In fact, when God says, you can ask for anything, he doesn't ask for power or money. He says, God, I'm young. Make me wise so that I can lead these people well. And through that, God blesses his rule. And we see Israel in its best possible place. The temple gets built. They're set in the land. There's peace on every single border. There's prosperity. People are doing well, and they're living under God's word, just as he said. And look what happens. In 1 Kings 10, we read, now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices 
and with very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all of the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpasses the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you, and has set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king, that you might execute justice and righteousness. This is Israel finally living and working as it was supposed to happen. And the nations are starting to come to them and being like, Wow, look how different you guys live. Look how happy your servants are and your people are. How well you execute justice. How differently you operate as a nation to the nations around you. How different your burnt offerings are to their burnt offerings. And what does she do? She praises God. This was the plan all along. That as Israel lived as a holy people, that the nations around them would come to know God and to worship Him and to live for Him just as they did. And it lasts for about two seconds. Because Solomon, though he starts out so well in his early years, turns away from the Lord, disobeys the Lord, he marries many wives, he starts to follow after false gods, and everything spirals down from there. His son turns out to be worse than even him, and Israel splits into two halves. The northern half is almost a universal disaster from start to finish, and the bottom half goes from being good to bad to good to bad until eventually they're both just death spiral down and are wiped out. And they become, in the end, exactly like the nations around them. That instead of being holy and different, they become just as unjust and corrupt as the nations around them. And God sends them out of the land and eventually in his mercy brings them back into the land. But it's never the same. Israel is never the same again. And then there's 400 years of silence until, Jesus, until God acts again. And this time he sends a king who doesn't stuff it up. This time Jesus comes. God himself comes. And he is a holy king. He is different to other kings. He doesn't come to bring war, but he comes humble and riding on a donkey. He doesn't come to kill and to take life, but to die and to give life. He doesn't come to punish, but to forgive. He comes to set the captives free. And we read in the Gospel of Matthew the account of Jesus' life, his ministry and his teaching, that he, like Moses in Deuteronomy, gathers God's people together and he gives a sermon. And like Moses, he does it from a mountain. But this time, instead of being about to send them into the promised land, he's about to send them out to the nations. Where in the Old Testament, God, people were meant to come to God's people, now God is going to send his people out. And in setting out what his people are to be like, look what he says in Matthew 5. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus makes maybe the simplest argument that has ever been made in history. He's like, if salt is not salty, it's useless. And that's a fair point. But he's not trying to give culinary advice here. His point is about what it means to be God's people because he's about to go on a long sermon about what it means to have your life transformed by the gospel in every single area. And he starts by saying, salt that's lost its flavorfulness is useless. Who would put salt that has no flavor on your food? You might as well just put sand in there. It is completely worthless. In fact, all you would do with it is throw it out. And what's he saying about his people? He's like, if my people are exactly the same as the culture around them, what's the point? That's why the argument that a church just needs to update its ideas to be more relevant is foolish. Whenever a church does that to try and keep pace with the culture around it, what happens to it? It dies because it becomes irrelevant. It's just more white noise. If the church just echoes back to the culture the same things it believes, it's not different, it's not distinct, and there's nothing to pay attention to. And it's not just an observation or an idea that they die out, they literally die out. I went for a run yesterday through the city and the surrounding areas, and I couldn't believe how many church buildings I went by that used to have, presumably, vibrant gatherings of God's people who wanted to follow him, who were salt, that had its saltiness, but had given up and had now been repurposed into clothing stores, into just community centers, or into residential buildings. When the church loses its saltiness, its distinction from the culture around it, it just dies out. But similarly, there is another way that churches die out, Jesus is saying. He says one way is for a church to kind of just compromise and change what it is to just be like the culture around it. But the other way it happens is when a church maintains its distinction but hides away. You saw what he said there, right? He said, a light, you don't, you don't get a light, you don't light a candle presumably in his day and then cover it, right? That's good fire safety advice because that's very dangerous. But also it would be pointless because why would you try and create light only to cover it over? Not only that, but he says, a city on a hill can't be hidden, You can't just throw a towel over it. If it's on top of a hill and it's a city, everyone can see it from everywhere around. And it says in the same same point, what's the point of a church or God's people if it's completely tucked away, if it's completely underground and covert? It's not meant to hide itself away. God's people are not meant to be hidden. They're not meant to just be distinct, but a tiny little bunker or subculture of people disconnected from the people around them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a minister during the Second World War. And he stood up to Hitler in his intimidation and was part of a a group that tried to actually take him down. And he believed with deep conviction that being a follower of Christ had implications for how you lived in the world around you. In regards to what was happening in Nazi Germany, he said, If I sit next to a madman as he drives a car into a group of innocent bystanders, I can't, as a Christian, simply wait for the catastrophe and then comfort the wounded and bury the dead. I must try to wrestle the steering wheel out of the hands of the driver. This was in response to Christians whose response to all of this was just to lay low and love and care for people. He's like, no, we are called to be different and to stand out and to do something. 
But commenting on these, this passage of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, he said this, it'll come up on the screen for you. A community of Jesus, which seeks to hide itself, has ceased to follow him. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the stand. The basket may be the fear of men, or perhaps a deliberate conformity to the world for some ulterior motive. That's how churches stop following Jesus. Is to say, I'll follow him, but I'll keep it private. We'll just bunker down, we'll lock away, and we'll wait for Jesus to come back. And I reckon if there was a danger for us as a church community, I reckon it's probably this one over the first one. The other thing is, it's not so much that we would backflip on orthodox doctrines or lose our distinctiveness, but that we might be a community who love Jesus, follow him, but just keep our distance increasingly from the culture that are locked away. And with that, to over time just become less and less salty in the good way that Jesus is talking about here. That we wouldn't live radically transformed lives like Jesus calls his people to live, but just kind of mildly different. To where Christianity becomes the kind of thing that's more of like a, like a quirk or an eccentricity. Like someone who's a grown-up but they do practical magic or something like that. You know, just like a hobby that we do on the side that makes us a bit different but sort of weird different. Sorry if it's your first week here and you do do practical magic. I think it's very, I think it's very impressive. I couldn't do it. But God's people here were meant to stand out. To have, to have encountered God in such a way that it radically transforms all of your life. You might be a people who are set apart, who are holy, who are good, different, in a way that then impacts those around you and are so engaged with the community around us that they can see these things and glorify God. I mean, you saw that in the passage there, right? It's the same as with the Queen of Sheba in the Old Testament, that she saw what was happening and then glorified God. And he's saying in the same way, You'd live such transformed lives that are so connected to the city around you that people would see that it's different and be like, wow, what's this God that you speak of? So in applying this, I just want to think a little bit towards next year. Next year, we actually as a church turned 10 years old. So in, yeah, that's pretty exciting. So in March next year, if you could just pencil into your calendars, March 4 and 5, we're going to make a big go of it. We're going to invite back all of our what do you call them, expats or something like that, just like to have a great time actually together as a church community and to celebrate what God has done over the last 10 years and to look back at his grace toward us over that decade. In particular, a lot's changed. Now we have these kids off in like a, there's a creche program and then like a preschool and, and infants and then primary and high school. Our church, our kids program when we started church was, to put it as frankly as possible, it was a pen that we put them in just behind the last row of seats of the church building up on Darling Street. So things have changed a little bit since then. But one thing that hasn't changed is the mission. The reason we are called City Light is because of this passage in Matthew 5. God called his people from Old Testament to New to stand out and to be different from the city around us. But in a good way. To be salt that hasn't lost its saltiness and to be light that's not hidden away. So as you think about next year... Wouldn't it be amazing if next year was just the beginning, if it was just actually the start of us getting moving, rather than just a celebration of what's happened over the last 10 years? Wouldn't it be amazing in 10 years' time to look back and say, gosh, the first 10 years was incredible in how God worked in that time, but it was nothing compared to the decade after that. 
What would it be like next year to see God move powerfully in this church community that we'd see radically transformed lives? What if next year is the year where you grow holier than any other year before? The more like Jesus, more conformed to his likeness, to see his grace transform more of your life next year than any other year. Imagine small groups where every week people are sharing how God has impacted their lives. Where small groups isn't something that you just kind of show up to, read a passage, go home. But it's a week where as you, you, are, you come hungry, wanting to know God's word, having seen him impact your life during the week and wanting to see him impacted in the week ahead. Where people are healed, where relationships are restored, where sin is repented of and mended, where people are laying down their lives, their work, their finances, just saying, God, whatever you want to do with me, I'm open to see it happen. Where there's concern for justice and the poor and the marginalized and the powerless. For our 10th year, imagine it being marked by just radical gospel transformation. But then this, the second thing is that maybe next year there would be marked by a community that is a light living radically transformed lives that wasn't hidden under a basket. Imagine then as these transformed people go out into the city to be like, you have to meet this God who turned my life around. You have to meet this God who is living and active, who isn't a concept or an idea, but who's living and breathing and really lives in, in us, in his people. To go out our city and love people like Christ and share the gospel with them and see them come to praise the Lord our God. And I think going into next year as the 10th year, that the timing is right. Not just because we're about base 10 numbers. God isn't really a base 10 kind of God. He's more, he's more a 7 guy. <laughs> but 10 is a nice round number. But I don't mean it so much in that way. I feel like the timing is right in the sense of over the last two years, we've had to bumble our way through pandemics, getting down here to the high school, kind of getting into shape for the next little while. And I think of it a little bit more like this. Have you ever seen like Iron, Iron Man, Iron Woman? How do you say it? Like Iron People? That sounds more like medieval reenactment society. Uh, like, you know what I'm talking about? They're, you know, at the beach, those kind of races, right? These are some of the fittest athletes on earth. And, uh, and one of the things that's, that's so kind of strange when you watch one of these races, so usually there's like a surf ski leg, you've got to go out. It's not kneeboarding. I know I'm, I'm insulting so many different things this, this morning. But anyway, but as you head out, kneeboarding, surf skiing, whatever, you do one leg, then you run around, then you have to do a swim. And then as you're coming in, there's like this in-between bit, right? So where the water gets a little bit shallower, they have to kind of, it's, it's, it's faster to run than to swim, but you can't really run. So you have to do this kind of like a, you know that thing where you kick your heels up a lot behind you to sort of get over the waves? And it's incredible to see these just peak athletes do this goofy run all the way into shore but then once they hit the sand they just fly now why am i telling you this i feel like the last two years moving through the pandemic has us been just kind of doing this goofy run as you just get hit with wave after wave right first it was like the restrictions and the lockdown then it was COVID, then everyone got sick, then everyone got sick again, then everyone got COVID again. And it was just like, just this, we sort of have to bumble your way through as we try and pull things together. We get down to the high school, then we have to go online, go back to the church up there, back down here. We start groups for families, everyone gets crook, then we start them up again. It's just like this kind of bumbly sort of run. And it kind of feels like maybe next year is just a little bit of, a little bit of clear space just to hit the sand and go. It might be the year we see God work powerfully. 
Not that he hasn't already, but then he might, we might press on just a little bit less hindered. Unless, of course, there's a tsunami that just comes through and, you know, anyway. You kind of get the idea with the metaphor. So with that in mind, leading into next year, I thought it would be fitting that as we kind of wrap up the year and head towards Christmas, that we might be bringing next year and even the decades to come before the Lord. That starting on Wednesday, that we're sending out prayer points every day. And if you want to, they won't be unsolicited. You have to sign up for it. But if you want to, you get a text at midday with just a prayer point each day about things that we want to be bringing before God heading into next year. That we might know that just like it was for Israel, it's not because we're great or amazing or anything like that. We trust that God loves his people, is more passionate for their holiness, and is more passionate for the lost than we are. And that if anything is going to happen, it's going to be through him. And so if you wanted to be amongst that, there'll be an email that goes out this week where you can sign up for prayer points just each day that we might be bringing it before God. And that will finish on the 13th of December, which is the night when we have our church family update, a time to pray together as a church family, vote on nominations, and also after that to hear David Bennett speak about sexuality, about his experience of God. And for that to be a time just between now and then to bring before God in prayer. That we might be a people who are called out and who are no, in no means extraordinary, who are just like Israel, no more extraordinary, no different in many ways than any of those around us, but who are loved by God and transformed by His grace. Let's pray that He'd do a mighty work in us over this next period. Father God, we praise You that You are so good to us, that You have poured out Your grace upon us, that when the kings appointed over Your people failed and fell short, when us of your people have failed and fallen short, that you sent the King Jesus to die in our place on our behalf, that we might be reconciled to you by his blood, that we might be washed and made new, and that we might be set apart, that you might work in us by your Holy Spirit to bring about your purposes in this world. Father, we know Jesus' words were true when he said, I will build this church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we just entrust all these things to you now, praying that you would do a mighty work through your people, that you might be glorified as you deserve, as your people follow you, lay down their lives before you, experience your grace and your forgiveness and your kindness and your love and your mercy, and as we hold out the gospel to a dying world, that they might find life indestructible in Christ. And Father, we just pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.